Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in today for our third study in Psalm 25, asking the question today, how does God guide us? And getting the answer from the scriptures, particularly Psalm 25, where we are continuing our August memorization challenge. We're at verses 11 to 15 this week. And just to encourage you in the hard work of memorizing, Mike and I ourselves are trying to recite the passages in each of these episodes. Mike, do you want to take a stab at verses 11 to 15? Yeah, I'll do my best here. So verse 11 begins, For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Word perfect, I believe. Thank you very much. Now, listeners, recall that in our first episode, episode 126, Mike took us through the first five verses and showed us that the most important thing about getting God's guidance is God. We are to turn to him, trust him, lift our souls to him, desire to be like him. Of course, we often fail at this. We still sin frequently and stray from the path of obedience to his word. So in our last episode, we looked at verses 6 to 10, which show us that God still wants to guide us, even though we have made many mistakes. That was such an encouraging section for a guy like me. And you know, the first verse in this week's section reinforces that truth even more, Matthew. It says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And we talked about chiasms last week, and it's likely that the whole psalm is a chiasm. And if so, verses 10 and 11 lie right at the heart of this psalm. And it may mean that David wants to give them special emphasis. In verse 10, he says that God's ways are good for those who keep his covenant and testimonies. But that immediately makes him conscious of all the times where he's failed to keep God's testimonies. And so he prays this prayer for pardon for his guilt. Matthew do you know what my favorite word is in this psalm? Well, there's a lot of words in this psalm. You're going to have to tell me. It's, it's the word for. And a close runner-up is the word therefore. So in verse 8, I would have written, Good and upright is the Lord, and yet he instructs sinners in the way. Mm-hmm. But David writes, therefore. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. So you see what hope that gives us? God doesn't guide sinful people like us in spite of his superior goodness. He guides us because of his goodness. And now here in verse 11, David says, pardon my guilt. Again, I would have written the next line like this, pardon my guilt in spite of how great it is. But scripture says, pardon my guilt for, because it is so great. The greatness of your sin, the greatness of my sin, is not an obstacle to God's desire to forgive us. It is the very reason he's anxious to forgive us. Can we put it this way? Our willingness to forgive is inversely proportional to the size of the offense done against us. But for God, if anything, it's the other way around. Yeah, that reminds me a little bit of the book review you did, I think, last Christmas time or last December, Gentle and Lowly by Ortland. It's a, it's a good point. And you've shown how that little word for changes everything. The greater the guilt, the greater the forgiveness must be. And the greater the forgiveness means the greater the forgiver. So you're saying that's why the verse begins with, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. Yeah, God's name is is in all caps. It's L-O-R-D, all caps Lord, which means it's the name, the personal name of Yahweh. And Yahweh has a reputation for being a merciful and forgiving God. 
So David is saying, because you have a reputation for forgiveness, pardon my guilt. And when you pardon my guilt, which is so great, it will show off even more, God, your reputation for being a forgiving God. It will show off your grace. And if there's one thing God wants, it's to declare to the whole universe the glory of his grace. Amen. And I'm sure the Apostle Paul must have meditated a long time on this little word for as well. He also believed and taught that God is glorified in forgiving sinners their guilt. And when he preached that, of course, not surprisingly, people responded a certain way. They'd throw up objections like, well, you get it in Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? Or this one in Romans 6, 1, I think we mentioned this last episode. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Those are common questions in response to the gospel of grace. And each time Paul would respond with, that's ridiculous. That's not what I'm saying at all. And again, we see that Paul closely studies Old Testament passages like this one in Psalm 25. Just after celebrating how God forgiving great sin shows off the greatness of God's name, David says in verse 11, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. So David and Paul would both say, God's amazing forgiveness does not encourage us to fall morally and fail. God's amazing forgiveness leads us to fear, as in the healthy kind of fearing God. Because God forgave me so much, now I really want to submit to him and please him. It matters to me how I live before him. Mm -hmm. And listeners, if this matter of fearing God throws you off a little bit, please take time to go back and check out episode 30. That's an episode that dropped August 29th, 2021. I can't believe it was that long ago. But in that episode, Mike took us through a number of verses and illustrations to show us that fearing God is not a negative thing, but a very positive and joyful thing. And that was a much listened to episode. If you haven't caught already, please do. That's episode 30, Our Fear of Fearing God. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Answer, a forgiven man, a forgiven woman. Remember Psalm 130 verse 4. It says, with you there is forgiveness, that, so that you may be feared. The kind of fear of God that God wants us to have to him is the kind of fear you have of someone who has just forgiven you and rescued you. I think back in episode 30, I mentioned the teenager who dove into the lake to save me from drowning and how every time I knew I would be seeing him, not just like the months after, but for years and years after, every time I knew I would be seeing him, it was a really big deal to me. I wanted to honor him and be thankful to him. It mattered to me what he thought of me. It mattered to me that he would approve of how I lived. And it mattered to me because he had saved me. Mm -hmm. Another way to see that fearing God is not a negative thing, but a positive thing, is that these verses show us that they're are great benefits to the person who fears God. Verse 13 here in Psalm 25, his soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. But the greatest benefit of fearing God according to these verses is God's guidance. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. Mike, in our first episode on Psalm 25, you said that you would talk more about what Psalm 25 means when it says God will guide us or lead us. So this is your lead to talk about that. All right. Well, thank you um, for helping me keep my promise. 
We're recording this just a few days away from being with you guys again uh, to help with another week of camp outreach out there in Halifax area. And I remember a game we played last year. At one part of it, you blindfold someone, or maybe it was two people on your team, and they have to wander off and retrieve an object. And the only way they know where to go is by listening to the rest of the team yelling at them. The problem is, it's likely that all the other teams are doing the same thing, and so there's a lot of noise and it was really hilarious to watch last year, except for the times when people ran into each other or, or into a volleyball net post. Yeah, those things do happen sometimes, but maybe don't need to mention them publicly on air. Right, we can cut that out, yeah. And maybe this is the kind of guidance we think we're supposed to get from God. It's like we're blindfolded. We can't see our next step. There's a lot of noise and voices in our ears, and we need to sort out which of the voices is God's quiet whisper of guidance. And he's saying, go left a little, oh, a little to the right, straight ahead. Whoa, you're veering off my plan A for your life, back to the left a bit. So we're listening for his voice to guide us step by step, what job he wants me to take, where to live, who to marry. And then maybe at a more day-to-day -day level, what route does he want me to take to work today? Or what shirt am I supposed to wear? Uh, what chapter in the Bible should I read? What podcast should I listen to? Well, that's an obvious one. You don't need to pray about that one. But, but we're listening to his voice. We're, we're relying on sensations, nudges, signs, feelings. You know, I feel like there's a post nearby. I sense that there's a person, an obstacle nearby, so I better alter my course. My focus is all on looking for clues and subtle suggestions as to where God wants me to plant my next step. Okay, and uh, I think you've probably got people listening now, Mike, and thinking as well. And just to carry your analogy a little further, one of the problems with having this concept of guidance, I think, is that sometimes we do walk into a post or an obstacle. What I mean is we do not get hurt physically, perhaps, but we face a trial. And because we think God's guidance is like this, the first thing we do when we hit a rough patch is we assume that somehow we must have got God's guidance wrong. In other words, if I was in the will of God, this difficulty wouldn't have come. If it was God's will, it would have gone smoothly. So we conclude, I must have been listening to the wrong voice. It couldn't have been his voice. It must have been someone else's. Or I must have strayed from his plan A for my life, and now I'm having to face the consequences for my failure. Meanwhile, if there's one thing clear in the psalm about guidance, it's that David is in a rough patch, right? I mean, all the way through the psalm, he talks about how big his enemies are and how hard his problems are. And yet here he is, he's asking for the Lord's guidance. So if that picture of people walking around blindfolded relying on the voices of others and their feelings and sensations to guide them is the wrong conception of God's guidance. What's, what's the better way to think of it? Well, I think of another thing we did at camp last year. We did a big hike through some forest and some people may or may not have gotten temporarily lost. That doesn't need to be publicly aired either. Uh, but let me use that as a starting point. So imagine you join a survival class and the instructor teaches you how to survive in the forest and how to find your way and he gives you a guidebook and he tells you over and over to read that thing and learn it. And then after several days of classroom instruction and in the field instruction, where he shows you how he does things like make a shelter and prepare food from tree roots and so on, then he leaves you in the forest and you have three days to find your way out. In this scenario, it's not at all about listening for the instructor's voice to tell you to slow up, there's a tree coming. It's not about saying, I wonder if the instructor wants me to crawl under this fallen tree or climb over it. That's not the focus at all. Rather, it's all about studying the teacher's book and seeking to walk in his ways. Yeah, so in this scenario, the students aren't asking themselves, 
What is the will of my instructor regarding where I should sleep tonight? Does he want me to sleep here or over there? Oh, I see a squirrel chattering over there on that tree, and God made squirrels, so maybe that's a sign from God. I'm supposed to sleep there for the night. No, instead, the students are using the wisdom the instructor has given them. There's a squirrel there, all right. There's also a huge anthill there, by the way. So taking everything into account that our teacher told us, it's better that we set up a shelter over in a different area for the night. Is that, is that what you're saying? It is what I'm saying. And if you've read some of the books on finding the will of God at this point, you'll recognize that I'm advocating for what's called the wisdom view of knowing God's will. And so let me just speak to that a little bit more. The Bible can talk about God's will in at least two ways. His command will, on the one hand, and his planned will, on the other hand. I think that helpful way of categorizing them comes from Keller in, in a sermon he did on Psalm 25. His planned will is all the specific things God has ordained to take place in our lives. This will is hidden to us. We don't know what a day will bring forth. What we do know is his command will. Why? because he's given it to us in his word. He's revealed his command will through things like the Ten Commandments and through the teaching of the Bible. His ways regarding relationships and forgiveness and patience and prayer and loving others, money, sex, the government, and so on. Yeah, and I think this is important because this is the common way that the scriptures speak of God's will. I mean, I think of 1 Thessalonians 4. This is God's will, your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 5. Give thanks in everything, for this is is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2, it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Those are good examples that we don't, we're not left to wonder what God's will is. He tells us what his will is. So for example, in the terms that you're using, it was God's planned will, you are saying, for your basement to flood last summer, Mike. Now you didn't know that, you didn't know the day before that it was going to rain, what, seven inches in one night. But what you did know was his command will. That even though your basement had flooded, God wanted you to be patient with other people. He wants you to find reasons to be thankful in the trial and to take care of the situation to the best of your ability. That is God's will for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are helpful references you gave earlier there too. And, and just to bring this back to Psalm 25, this is what David means and what most of the Bible writers mean when they talk about guidance. We touched on this when we were back in the first five verses. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. These ways and paths are referring to God's command will, not a secret planned will. David isn't saying, Lord, show me if I'm supposed to be a shepherd or a famous singer-songwriter. He's saying, Lord, show me how you want me to live. Show me the kind of person I'm supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Now, to be fair, I've, I've wondered, and I'm not sure, and it's dangerous to wonder out loud, but I've wondered personally if those references to God's ways, plural and paths, back in verse 5, uh, are not his explicit commands here, but in the words of Dale Ralph Davis, the way God operates, or how God deals with his people. And then linking this with verse 10, all the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth. So that David is saying, help me to learn the ways you work in people's lives. Help me to see in my own circumstances how you are teaching me your faithful love and truth. Now that's actually, I'd say, a, a very minor difference from what you're saying though, Mike, because I would say the way we get to know God's ways in the sense I'm speaking of is through his word and applying his word to my life. For example, I see how he works out his will in the life of Joseph in Genesis and how Joseph responds. And I'm learning God's ways from his word 
and thinking about how he's working in my life in the same method. So I'm still with you that David is not saying, show me whether I should be a shepherd or a singer or a king or a badminton player, but he wants to know God and he wants to understand God's principles better so that he can apply them to his life. Does that make sense? Does that sound okay? Yeah, I, I need to think about it a wee bit more, but I'm I think I think you and I are pretty close on this, especially on how this actually plays out in our lives. And I think I'm going to get to what you've just expressed in a few minutes. But but the point is, the word is still the guide, and the thing that we're wanting to be guided about is <clears throat> not so much morally equivalent decisions, but but about how to be like God and live the way He wants us to live. Mm-hmm. And. Then in that section last week in verses 8 and 9, David said, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. What way is he talking about? Well, the verse, the next verse tells us he leads the humble in what is right. So his word is going to show us what is right. It's going to show us the right way. Exactly, yeah. That, that verse that you've just quoted is crystal clear to me. He leads the humble well, in what way and what is right. That's what I'm after here. I think that's what this psalm is after. Okay, but now I've got a question for you because I used an analogy last week from J.I. Packer that I thought you liked, but I'm wondering if you're disagreeing with now in episode 127 about being lost and asking for directions and the individual, instead of telling us a list of directions, do this and then this and then turn there and then go that far and then turn there, he gets in the car with us and we said it's better to have the guide than the guidance. Now, how does that relate to what you're saying now that the guide has just left us with a guidebook? Yeah, I think... I think we could have a longer conversation about this, but I'm, I'm happy with that analogy. I still am. I was then. I still am today. I'm happy with most things Packer says. But the point of that analogy that he's giving there um, is that we're to want the guide more than the guidance, right? And we've talked about that in the previous episodes. Packer's pushing against our tendency to just want the next step. Tell me the next step. And we want that next step more than we actually want him. And then the second thing I'd say here, Matthew, is I think Packer is talking about vocational guidance there about figuring out between two morally acceptable options. Do I go into pharmacy or into law? Whereas the guidance David is talking about in this psalm is moral guidance. He's wanting the Lord to teach him how to live the way God wants him to live. So it's more like the guide coming into our lives and teaching us how to be humble or pure or loving. Yeah, as I think about it, in that analogy from Packer, the, the map or the list of directions isn't picturing the Bible. It's, it's talking about, you know, our wanting to know, yeah, where I should move and then where I should move a couple years after that and what job I should take and then who I'm going to marry after that and then uh, where I'm going to focus in the local church. And in contrast to that, he's saying, get to know the guide. Now, in the analogy that you've been building today, the guidebook represents the scripture specifically. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Isaiah 26, 7, 8 has been a big help to me in this area of guidance. It says, you clear a straight path for the righteous. Yes, Lord, we wait for you in the path of your judgments. And I think one of the things that is going on in those verses is that as I obey the clear, revealed will of God, the command will, that's spelled out for me in the scriptures, and I seek by his grace to live righteously, the path in the cloudy areas or the foggier areas often gradually becomes more clear because in that path of obedience, I am learning to distinguish between what pleases God and what doesn't. And I think you're going to tell us that's what's going on in this psalm too. Like in this week's verse 12, who is the person who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way he should choose. You're saying 
this isn't a promise that if we're trying to figure out if we should buy a Benz or a Beamer, the Lord will show us which car to buy, is it? Well, you should definitely get the Beamer, Matthew. Uh, but no, I don't think that's what this verse is referring to. Uh, John Goldingay in his commentary, he says, The problem about choice in accordance with Yahweh's will that the psalm has in mind is not the choice between various possibilities that might all be good, shall I be a lawyer or a rocket scientist, but the choice between an option that is compatible with commitment to Yahweh and one that is not. David is saying that if we fear God, he'll help us choose courses of action that are morally and ethically right. For example, uh, say I speak sharply to my daughter, and later I regret my words in anger and I feel really bad about it. Well, if I fear God, God will help me do what I need to do, do what's right. And what's that? Well, I'm going to go down to her bedroom and apologize to her and ask her to, to for and ask her to forgive me. And that's not because you just flipped open your Bible and it landed on Ephesians 4 this morning and you read the word forgive. No, it's because your fear of the Lord has enabled you to know the Lord and to know what pleases him, right? Right, yeah. So, you've introduced us to two different images or conceptions of getting God's guidance. Maybe we could call one the blindfold view, using your analogy from camp last summer, and the other the guidebook view. And you're clearly advocating for the guidebook view and giving us scriptural support for it as well. But a question is bound to come up. Does this guidebook view mean that God doesn't care then about which person we marry or uh, exactly which job we take or, or which house we choose to buy? Great question. And the simple answer is no, it does not mean that. The guidebook view doesn't mean that these decisions aren't important, but these are two different ways of approaching these important decisions. In the blindfold approach, my focus is all on cues and clues. God has this plan A for who I should marry, and the secret of my life is figuring out what her name is. It's like a game of probe. I don't know if anyone plays that game anymore, but I used to when I was a boy. And the other person writes down a word and turns down all these flaps, and you've got to guess you know, what letters are in the word. And, and so God's written uh, my, sp my future spouse's name down on a paper. He's covered it up. And some people are just better at figuring it out than others. You know, we, we ask the Lord, do you have an H? Or my in-laws would say, do you have a, an H, an E? Oh, two of them. Do you have an L, an N? Helen, woohoo, I can get married at 23. And then other poor guys, if their future partner is a longer name, maybe it takes longer to figure, figure out. But in this approach, we don't actually grow in wisdom and maturity. We just get better at recognizing subtle clues. In the guidebook approach, our focus isn't at all on figuring out God's secret plan for our lives. Rather, we're like David. We're focused on God. We dig into his instruction. We pray that he would teach us his ways and cause us to walk in his truth. And as we do so, we learn to live in his ways. We grow in wisdom. We find out what he values in marriage and what kind of partner to look for. We discover that he is sovereign in our lives and that it's therefore good to account for his sovereignty in our lives, things like what kind of personality he gave me and what kind of personality this other potential person has. And we learn to value the advice of others. The whole process, in other words, it results in us actually becoming more like God himself. And of course, people who take the approach of looking for subtle cues and quiet whispers, I, I think we know they can grow in likeness to God as well. But it does seem that the guidebook view supports growth in Christ-likeness in a way that the other one doesn't. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I agree. I mean, in the blindfold view, we end up doing things like this. God, if she picks up the phone, that means it's your will for me to ask her out for a date tonight. I think a little biblical reflection would lead most of us to agree 
that that's not the primary way we're meant to live our lives. Of course, God can bless that way and use it. He is happy to work with us wherever we're at in our journey. But I think we're on a better path to growth when we follow David's lead. And I think what you said there is wise. We're not saying God can't guide people in very peculiar ways at times. God can do what God wants to do. We're not trying to box God in, but the God we want to know is the God of the Bible. And not only does this way of getting guidance help us grow in being God-like in our character, it also helps us grow in intimacy with God and relationship with God. Uh, Verse 14 in the ESV says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. The KJV translates that word friendship as secret. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. Your beloved CSB has secret counsel, Matthew. And Alan Ross in his commentary on the Hebrew here, he says the word translated secret counsel indicates that there is close, intimate communion between God and his people. He reveals his heart as well as his will to them. And maybe someone's just heard that and you're saying, see, if I walk close to God, he'll not just give me his revealed will in the Bible. He'll give me his secret inside track. He'll, he'll nudge me what lane to take in traffic and I'll fly past everyone else. He'll nudge me just before an investment really rises in value and I'll put my money in and so on. Well, maybe those examples I've just given aren't fair and they aren't fair. But, but again, I don't think this is what's in mind. David is talking about intimate friendship with God. Peter Craigie says, to those who feared or revered God, there was held out the promise of an intimate relationship of friendship. And this intimate friendship comes not through God divulging secrets to us that no one else can ever know about. Rather, God enables us to experience his intimate presence through his word. So listen to how the NIV translates this verse. It says, The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. You see how the parallel Uh, the parallelism in Hebrew works there. The the two phrases are kind of explaining each other. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. He makes his covenant known to them through his word, which is his covenant document. This is still the guidebook approach, in other words. We fear God, and he helps us understand his word, the Bible, and his new covenant with us, and how much he loves us, and all the good he has stored up for us. And as we grow in knowing him in this way, we come to greater and greater intimacy with him. And in the end, that has to be the greatest benefit of all of fearing God, a closer experience of intimacy with him. But Mike, I feel like you need to come back and say something about the vocational choices in life. If these verses aren't so much talking about God leading us in these decisions, how are we to decide which career path to take and who to pursue in marriage? Thank you. Yeah, that's important to touch on. And uh, we're just going to touch on it briefly here. Maybe we need to come back, as we've been saying, Matthew, and, and do more on this. But, but what we do, in short, is pursue a lifelong relationship with God the Father, Son, and Spirit through His Word. And we learn to walk in His ways and act in ways that conform with His revealed will. Is this line of work suitable for me as a believer? Uh, I'm to love my neighbor as myself, according to the Bible. Well, is this the kind of job that God has fitted me for, and I would be able to serve others and love others well in it? So we approach it with these kinds of considerations, with biblical wisdom, and we pray and ask the Lord for wisdom. And yes, I certainly do ask that he'll guide me as I'm making decisions, you know, and we can turn to others for counsel. The truth is, 
we should feel quite a bit of freedom in this. If we truly fear God, we will seek to live in conformity to his word, and beyond the bounds that the word gives, we are free. This university or that university, well, pray about it, wait on the Lord, consider what biblical principles, if any, play into the decision. For example, will there be a good local church that I can be a part of at, at either of these universities? Get all the facts, weigh the pros and cons, and before God, make the best decision you can. It's the word of God that gives you freedom to do so. And a point I tried to make last week is that it's still not always going to be 100% crystal clear when decision time comes. But if we are sincere in wanting to honor God in the decision, in other words, we're making the choice in the fear of God, then we can take that next step in freedom and in faith with confidence in God. And then in time, we'll be able to trace his hand in the circumstances and learn the truth of verse 10 again, all the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth. I think back, Mike, to when I first approached Esther about commencing a relationship together. I wasn't reading in the book of Esther at the time. You know, that wasn't my clue to reach out to her. Yeah, and if you took that approach, uh, you know, what if you were reading near the end of Acts and came across Drusilla's name? You might have a hard time finding a Drusilla to marry. I think I would have, yeah. So, good point. Now, I do admit, actually, trying to get a specific verse from the Bible, I think, at the time to tell me, I don't know, that I should contact Esther right then or, or that she was the one, something like that. But I was also aware of the potential in my own heart to just look for what I wanted to see. That's the big risk with this, um, with that approach. I'll tell you what else was going on. I was praying that the Lord would lead me to a wife that would honor him, help me to honor him. And I was thinking of what I had observed in Esther's character and how her family's household functioned. And yes, I found her attractive too. That's not irrelevant. I'll talk about that sometime on an episode on dating perhaps. But my point is I was taking what I knew from the Bible and thinking about how to apply that to this important decision. And then at some point with prayer, I did have to take a, a step forward by faith. And I can say today that the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth. Does that ring true with what you're trying to say today, Mike? Or do you have an example from your life where you can apply today's teaching? Yeah, that does ring true. And I can't help myself but say that the Lord very clearly answered your prayer and led you to a wife that, um, that fulfilled exactly what you were desiring and praying for there. Amen. I think what you've just described does model well what I believe the scriptures would encourage us to take as an approach to making these decisions. I realize that it's possible that I've opened up a can of worms in this episode, and so um, maybe I can just sketch what, what I plan to do in some of my episodes in the near future. Matthew, I plan to have a guest on to tell us more about God's providence and take one or two episodes on that. And then I have a good friend of mine, and um, I think people are going to love this. I'm going to interview him, and he, Lord willing, is going to tell us some of his own struggles with knowing the Lord's guidance regarding career and so on. And I think that'll be really, really helpful. And then if we need to do another episode to tie all these things up and just focus especially on uh, making vocational decisions, maybe we can do that. But these are some thoughts going on. Anyways, hopefully this episode helps us get the ball rolling and uh, make sure that we're calibrating our approach to knowing the Lord's guidance to his actual word. All right, good stuff, thought-provoking, good discussion today, I think. Thank you for sharing it, and thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. Yeah, and uh, plod along in your memorization. If you're 
participating in this challenge. So this coming week, our assigned verses are verses 16 to 20. Matthew's going to have an episode next Sunday night coming out that will talk about those. And then you'll have just a couple of verses to finish up. And uh, you'll be able to email us at info at practicologypodcast.com to let us know that you finished and we will send out a prize to you. Great. Thanks everyone for tuning in. May the Lord bless you all.